0: Ever wonder what's wrong with the meat industry in our country? Maybe you've never thought much about it, but when the power from a handful of companies limits your choices as a consumer, it doesn't sit well. Today we're going there, just priming the pump, so to speak. You'll see what I mean in a minute. Welcome to Talk Farm to Me, the podcast that makes you rethink how you live with insights from a source you never knew you needed until now. I'm your host, Dana DePrima, bringing you interesting farmers and farm conversations since 2019. Today, I am excited to bring you together with Liz Reitzig. Liz takes matters into her own hands where her food is concerned. She has masterminded a local food program in her area, has a podcast that dives into it all and is involved in agitating for better options for all of us from a legislative standpoint. It's not just Liz's dinner plate that's full. Let's dive in and find out how all of this ties into the PRIME Act, a key piece of legislation that impacts your life for sure, even if you don't eat meat. And you can bet the farm that the four big meat processing companies don't want this to happen. But first, let's see how Liz got started.
1: My oldest child is 21. And when she was a baby, I started looking into how can I get the best food for my children? Come to find out, it was not available anywhere near me. For a while, I worked with other people who were providing that locally produced food from small farms, sustainable, regenerative farms, and I would buy from them. And then I realized that there needed to be more options available for many reasons. And I started my own. So what we do is we work with local farms to find and source the best items in our area. And we make those available to our community. So you have a store. It's a delivery. So it's neighborhood deliveries, not home deliveries. It's neighborhood deliveries to help build and foster communities and community participation in our food systems.
0: And how many farms are you sourcing from? We currently source from at least a
1: dozen and, Sometimes that ebbs and flows a little bit, depending on
0: logistics, primarily. <laughs> Can we get out there this time or not? When you say neighborhood deliveries, like to a community center, a business where people pick up like a CSA? It's always to people's homes.
1: Okay. Somebody will act as our drop site and they'll have a place for us to make that delivery. We, we deliver in ice chests on ice. And then people
0: in the neighborhood or surrounding neighborhoods can come and pick up there. And how does somebody sign up for that if they want to be a customer?
1: Call or email. And occasionally people find an article or a posting about it someplace else. And they contact me that way. But it does pretty much go through me and direct referrals because there's a certain amount of you have to know what this is about and why you're doing it. So we have a talk through process and see if it's a good fit for them. And how far does your
0: service reach, like miles-wise?
1: Maybe a 50-mile radius of a couple of D.C. communities.
0: So it's meats, vegetables, eggs, dairy, the gamut? It is. And we have a
1: local farm here in Southern Maryland that grows and provides grains, beans, and even upland rice. Mm.
0: Okay, while we're here, upland rice is cultivated in non-flooded fields, unlike traditional lowland rice that is grown in submerged conditions. It does not require large amounts of water for cultivation, which allows for more sustainable farming. It's a pretty uncommon product to find in a CSA or delivery program.
1: The community deliveries have always been a pivotal, important component of this because Part of this is building community around new food systems.
0: Okay, so Liz is a bit of a pioneer. She picks up food from local farms she sources it from and delivers it to a community hub, someone's house, so that organic, pun intended, conversations can take place among community members underscoring the importance of these connections. Farmer to consumer, consumer to community, community to farmer. Liz carries this spirit through everything she does, from her Nourishing Liberty podcast to the work that she does on the Hill advocating for the Prime Act. Let's talk about how the Prime Act fits into all of this. Let's start at the beginning, really, with what's going on with meat in our country.
1: These four big meatpacking companies are controlling not just the meat, but our perception of it. And that is a big issue for farmers and for the people who want to support those farmers. And here's one of the main reasons. The butchering process is all controlled by those four companies,
0: the four big corporations that basically have an oligopoly on meat processing, are Cargill, Tyson Foods, JBS SA, and National Beef Packing
1: and of course the regulatory agencies.
0: The regulatory agencies are primarily the United States Department of Agriculture and the Food and Drug Administration, USDA and the FDA. Here's your alphabet soup.
1: And that's 85% of the meat in our country is coming from those four companies. That leaves 15% market share to fight for their tiny little portion of that. And what that looks like in the small farm world is that farmers are not very readily getting the appointments they need at the slaughter facilities. I'm going to use a few words, slaughter, slaughterhouses, harvesting, and processing. And they all basically refer to the same thing. And that's the process of a farmer who raises an animal for meat, sending that meat to the slaughterhouse where it gets killed and then cut up so that it can arrive at our homes and tables as meat to nourish our families. Something I think that some Americans are... Uncomfortable reconciling themselves with it. This process has to happen if we're going to nourish ourselves. But it does. And we have to understand how it happens and how to make it happen as humanely as possible.
0: On this topic, I am going to link two episodes in the show notes. One, a conversation with Temple Grandin, by far the most influential person of our time on the issue of the humane treatment of cattle, in particular in these big slaughterhouses. And the second one was Steve Roach of Farm Animal Concerns Trust, or FACT. They will deepen your understanding of what girds the need for more and better options in the meat space.
1: So, what the PRIME
0: Act does is it says that if you're
1: a farmer and you're waiting for an appointment at your local USDA slaughter facility, it's gonna open up another door for you. It's gonna use an already existing exemption to make it easier for farmers to schedule appointments at their custom slaughter facilities.
0: I'm sorry to interrupt here, but in the world of small farms, all across the country, there are hundreds of examples of USDA facilities closing or being overbooked. Sometimes they cancel appointments that have been made a year or more in advance. So can't a farmer go to another one? Well, they are few and far between. That's the reality. And what it means for farmers and for you is that your farmer, I'm thinking about New York farmer Carrie Edsall, your farmer has to travel further. More gas money, more hours away from the farm, and more travel time means more stress on the animals, which shows up in your meat. Yes, I am linking the episode with Carrie of Black Pond Farm in the show notes too. And when you say exemption, tell me what you mean. Okay, for example, farmers who want to
1: slaughter an animal and sell that meat by the cut, so one pound of hamburger, one steak, they have to go through a USDA slaughter facility. And what that means is the slaughter facilities have to have a USDA inspector on staff for every kill. And that staff person inspects the brain, the liver, a couple other things before that animal can then be cut up for meat. That's what the USDA inspection process does, among other things, but that's a big part of it. The custom slaughter exemption says, if you're a custom slaughterhouse, you do not have to have that USDA inspector there for every kill, but the animal meat cannot be sold by the cut. It can only go to the owner. What that means for you and me, Dana, is that you can buy a cow from a farm And you can take your living cow to that custom slaughter facility, and then you can pay the facility to kill and cut the animal. And then you get that meat back. But really, a lot of Americans cannot afford to buy an entire cow at a time or have the space to store that kind of meat. That exemption does extend so that we can share that animal. You can buy half the cow. I can buy half the cow. However, That exemption currently does not extend to the farmer getting that meat back and selling it by the cut.
0: One note before we proceed here even though a custom slaughterhouse does not have a USDA inspector on site, does not mean that they do not have strict rules and regulations. I have heard from local farmers again and again that the custom slaughterhouses that they use have even higher standards. Let's ask Liz to address this. Now, why do you think this has been a limitation of this custom meat exemption? Meaning, is there something in the inspection process? Is only the USDA can make sure that we're getting healthy meat? Why is it the way it is so far? And then what are the barriers then to getting the Prime Act approved?
1: So why is it the way it is? That is a tangled web of laws and regulations that at this point is relatively impossible to untangle why and how it all happened, but you can bet the big four had something to do with it. They are an extremely strong lobby. They literally write laws and regulations that then get approved. And it did not used to be this way prior to the 1980s. And then they got more power, they got more say, and exemptions were fewer and further between. So it really is a big tangled web of... Bureaucracy and those huge corporations that are controlling so much of what we eat. Now, all that being said, the custom exempt slaughterhouses are entirely regulated on the state level. They have to follow meticulous safety requirements, they have inspection processes they go through. So they are already heavily regulated and must pass stringent
0: safety requirements. But these blocks still exist. And if I have chicken that is processed in a custom slaughterhouse, I can sell it within my state, just not over state lines.
1: Chicken and beef and pork, totally separate. Okay. So you have a completely separate set of regulations for beef and pork and lamb, and then a whole other set for chicken and turkey. The Prime Act is just for red meat? Correct. Yeah. Chickens already have an exemption where you can slaughter on farm, process on farm and sell within your state. That exemption is already there. It's great. It's working. And yes, it would be great to expand that even more, but that chicken exemption exists and is working.
0: So isn't that a precedent for how this could work, the Prime
1: Act? Yes, and it's a lot more complicated than that. And some would argue that the restrictions on slaughter right now and every animal having to go through a USDA facility is further compressing the beef industry. I have heard that many times before, that the requirements are making it harder and harder for small farms to exist. I've seen it too. So when you look at the blocks, what farmers experience is they cannot get appointments at their local USDA facility. If they can get appointments, they have to make those appointments so far out. Sometimes the calf isn't even born yet. And they have to figure out a date that it's going to go to the process or some 18 months to 24 months in the future. This is near impossible, as you can imagine.
0: So I've heard a lot from small farmers really across the country who I've been interviewing that the USDA processors have closed down, that the drive time to a USDA processor is three, four, five times as far as the local custom processor That's a gas expenditure. That's a time expenditure that stress on the animal before it's slaughtered, which nobody wants, least of all the farmer, but certainly not the consumer. And then I've also spoken to a number of farms that are applying for and creating their own USDA slaughterhouse, you know, Will Harris in Bluffton, Georgia, Five Marys, another one in Oregon. So, Yeah. A lot of them are really considering that as the only option for continuing their their small business.
1: Yes, you just hit the nail on the head. That is so common right now. It's a huge struggle for the smaller producers. And if you think about the expense and the the money needed for creating an on-farm slaughterhouse, that's exclusive, right? Only a very few of our, quote, small farms can actually do that. So it, it further compresses, even this you know regenerative farming movement, so to speak, if only half of 1% of the regenerative farmers can actually do this on farm or find a local facility, it chokes them out. So this choke point of farmers being able to process their animals, this is huge when it comes to local food access, fostering a resilient food system, short food supply chains, this is vital and it's not getting enough attention. What Prime Act does essentially is it expands that exemption. So if a farmer takes their animal to a local custom slaughter facility, which you're right, might be right down the road instead of five hours away, they can then get the meat back from their own animal and sell that meat by the cut within their state.
0: Okay, so tell me, the process here. The Prime Act was written and proposed by, and then you'll just fill me in on the process, like from birth of the Prime Act to where we are now and what we can do.
1: Originally, Prime Act was introduced in Congress by Representative Thomas Massey from Kentucky and Representative Shelley Pingree from Maine. Now, Representative Thomas Massey is Republican and Congresswoman Shelley Pingree is Democrat. So this is a beautiful bipartisan bill. And both of them are farmers. They are both active farmers. And it's bicameral, which means that the identical version is proposed in the Senate. And that is introduced by Senator Rand Paul and Senator Angus King from Maine. So you have, again, Kentucky and Maine. That started several Congresses ago, maybe four Congresses ago. So we're looking at this bill's been around for a little while. Every time it gets many co-sponsors, bipartisan co-sponsors, Republicans and Democrats, clearly this food issue matters. But it has not gone anywhere in Congress until this time. This time it had a hearing earlier in the year. And guess what? In that hearing, they brought up the monopoly of the Big Four and the antitrust issues that that is dealing with. Now, if we can get the provisions of the Prime Act into the Farm Bill, and get that through, this would be a huge relief to the farmers who are
0: struggling with processing issues. And so what do we do?
1: We call our representatives? Calling your representatives is always a good place to start. You can call them and let them know to please support the PRIME Act or the provisions of the PRIME Act in the Farm Bill. Now, if your representative is currently a co-sponsor of this bill, you want to say thank you. Thank you for your support and please continue supporting. We always want to add that, right? And we want to say to them at this point, we are enthusiastic supporters of including the provisions of the Prime Act in the Farm Bill. Something along those lines.
0: The people that you mentioned, are there additional sponsors who have signed on to the Prime Act besides those four?
1: Yes. And that list is so long. I can't even begin to name them all. There's something like 60 co-sponsors. So Yay. And that shows that our calls make a difference. They really do.
0: As a small farmer, I see the direct benefits. And I think now that you have explained it, everyone is going to really understand that, right? I have a cow. My cow can go to the closest slaughterhouse that has really high standards, inspections and everything. It can become dinner plate meat and go to the customer within my state. That makes perfect sense. Explain to me the benefits for consumers who are not farmers.
1: Great question. One of the benefits, of course, is going to be access to local meat and price point. So as you noted, when a farmer has to go three hours, five hours to get a couple of steers slaughtered, that is going to dramatically increase the price of that meat. Why? Because they have to add in that fuel charge and their time. That is not trivial. That is not insignificant. Also, if you think about on the supply chain level, if local USDA facilities know they're the only ones, they're going to adjust prices a little bit based on the supply and demand of their feeling from the local farmers. So those prices could go up just because the slaughterhouses have too long of a list, for example. And that Impacts us immediately in our pocketbooks, right? The price of meat. We're all feeling it right now. The second issue is availability. And I want to look at this in two different ways. One is short term availability. And that is if I'm going to a local farm and let's say I want to make a special dinner and I need this cut of meat. Well, if they aren't able to get the appointment that they need when the animal is ready, chances are they're going to be pretty low supply. So instead of making this, I'm going to be stuck with hamburgers. <laughs> For example, now, that's not the end of the world. I'm still getting the food I need. I'm still getting it from a local farm. That's a short-term situation. More long-term, what happens when farmers can't sell?
0: They go out of business.
1: They go out of business. And so when you have, like, let's just play out a scenario real quick. You have a farmer who's selling at market. And they're selling, they've got their big cooler full of meat every week, but they haven't been able to make an appointment at a local slaughter facility. They can't get on the schedule. So their cooler's half full. So the customers come over and they're asked, Do you have this? Do you have this? No, 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 no. Well, customers are not all that patient with that. They want what they want and they want it right now. Thank you very much. They go someplace else, they go find a different farm, they mail order it from one of the small regenerative farms that has a USDA facility on site. Well, you just lost your neighborhood local farm because they could not make an appointment and sell the meat that they're producing. We lose them. And that's a chain reaction. The more it happens, the more it happens. So when we're looking at cultivating a really resilient and local food supply chain, we need to look at some of the choke points like farmers not being able to get appointments at Slaughter facilities and then being able to sell their meat. We have to look there. This is their
0: livelihood. I want to go back to the big four for a second because I thought you said something really interesting about them. Not only are they controlling 85% of the meat, and that means how that meat is raised with some practices that I think people have on the edges of their consciousness at the least. So there are CAFOs. Those are confined animal feeding operations that generally have a large number of animals raised and finished fed in relatively compact spaces. Some CAFOs house tens of thousands of animals. There are pigs in tiny containers, etc., like things that people are slightly aware of. But yeah. you said something really interesting, and that is not only that they are controlling the meat, that means how it's raised, the pricing, where you can get it, how it's cut, all of those things, but they're controlling the narrative around meat. Give me some examples of that. Well,
1: one example of that is food safety. That's a huge talking point right now, especially as related to creating further exemptions in any area of small farm to table stuff, food safety. So they come in and they say, that local meat from that local custom facility, that's not safe. And really, sometimes that's all they need to say. Or a consumer-facing organization will be the talking point for them. Oh, we're really worried about food safety as related to this. So they have the money. <laughs> they can do this. They can pop up any AstroTurf grassroots organization they want and have a, a mom talking about food safety issues and local meat.
0: Whoa, an AstroTurf grassroots organization? I was at one point a soccer mom, but this is definitely a horse of a different color. AstroTurfing refers to the deceptive practice of taking a fake, seemingly grassroots movement to advance a hidden agenda. Rather than genuine community support, AstroTurfing often involves orchestrated campaigns with fabricated messages, social media posts, or stage events. This covert influence behind seemingly organic movement has become a huge issue as citizens navigate an era of information overload. We are now called to discern what is genuine and what isn't when it comes to these sorts of campaigns. Jeez.
1: This is hugely problematic. And it's not just in this one arena, right? We know that this is happening all over with food issues and additives and GMOs and things like that, that these... Fake grassroots organizations are coming in and saying these things with piles of money. The funny thing is,
0: is that the last major food safety issue that is top of mind for me came from the big four.
1: Yes, it's it's something like in the past 10 years, millions of pounds of meat recalled due to food safety issues and not a single recorded incident from the custom slaughter facilities. But that comes out in podcasts, that comes out in blogs, that
0: does not come out in big media stories. This astroturfing makes you realize, or underscores a realization that you have probably already had for some time now, that things are not as they seem, and that transparency is harder to get to than it should be. Do you feel that way? Well, here is a parallel issue. I bring it up because I have been fooled by it, and I am wary family farms, cloaking these big multinational corporations in family farms. It's a form of astroturfing. I feel like these big slaughterhouses, these big food companies talk about the family farm in a way that I don't trust, meaning 98% of our farms or family farms. Now there is a huge difference between the family farm down the road for me that has, you know, the mom and the dad and the teenager getting up before school and coming home and that's their livelihood. And all of that care goes into those dairy cows, those chickens to the family farm that is now part of a big multinational corporation where they are processing, raising meat in the way that they have been hired by these companies to do. And yes, while there's a family there, it's very different. They're like family washing these big operations. And it's upsetting to me.
1: I completely agree. I think the question that we need to ask for clarity on that is who gets to set the prices?
0: This is a really good point. It is a question that we should all put a bookmark in.
1: And suddenly it's like a curtain is lifted and you you see the man behind the curtain, essentially. So when you hear this talking point of it's, it's all small family farms, but if that family dairy doesn't get to set the price on their milk, who's in control? If the family chicken farm is under contract and doesn't get to sell their own chickens, they're not even their own chickens... There are big company's chickens that the farm is contracted to raise. Is that a family farm? And you're right. Those big companies are intentionally making that muddy and messy in our minds. Because, of course, we want to support the family. For me in Maryland, it's the families on the Eastern Shore that are raising chickens. Of course, I want my Eastern Shore neighbors to live a meaningful, full life and have income. But they don't get to set their prices. And they're not selling direct to me.
0: Right. So the family farm that is contracted to raise thousands of chickens a week for slaughter are sending that money to the company. And it's not going into the local community where that family lives and and works, really. Let me tell you a story.
1: And this has happened many times over the past couple of years. I'm not going to name individuals or families or farms. But an example of this is dairy farms contract with co-ops. That means that they milk the cows. They're the ones getting up, that wonderful family, getting up at four o'clock in the morning and milking the cows, taking care of the cows every single day. They get all the milk in the milk tank, and then a big co-op pays them per hundredweight for all that milk.
0: Hundredweight is a very complicated way to measure milk in the dairy industry. It's basically 11.6 gallons which is the amount of milk you get from approximately 100 pounds of feed.
1: And this farm is under contract, meaning they can't sell their milk to another co-op, they can't sell it direct, all of that. And so what we saw happen in my area, Maryland and Pennsylvania a couple of years ago, these farms, they thought they had secure income with these contracts. And they call me crying because they get letters. This is what they say, I got a letter today. And what that means is, They got a letter from the co-op canceling their contract. So it is the families pouring their blood, sweat, and tears into those farms, but they don't have any control over the sales or the pricing.
0: That's the name of the game, control. We have four meat processing multinational corporations controlling where we get our meat from. We have AstroTurf organizations spreading PR for those companies. Farmers are at a loss and going out of business, and you? you are left with less real choices.
1: If we're gonna have an honest food system with integrity in it, we're gonna be able to make those choices and we will find out for ourselves what foods do we think are important, what foods do we value, what foods are culturally important to us or meaningfully emotional for us, all of those things. But we're not getting true facts.
0: When it comes down to it, there is so much to know and many astroturf organizations to navigate around and a big four oligopoly to recognize, it can be and is overwhelming. But I see Liz knowing that she wanted to provide the best food for her family when her first child was born 21 years ago. Understanding that sourcing such food locally benefits her community both economically and in terms of more widespread consciousness. Liz walks the talk. You don't have to do all that she has done, but at least now you are armed with more information so you know what you are up against. Overwhelmed? I am a little, but I am going to call my representatives to encourage them to support the Prime Act and other good food measures, because it matters to me, to my family's health, and to the vibrancy of my community and local economy. This is Talk Farm to Me the podcast that makes you rethink how you live with insights from a source you never knew you needed until now. I am your host, Dana DePrima, and I will see you at our next farm conversation right around the corner.